Well, good afternoon and welcome to FS Club and one of our favorite uh, little uh, series, Communities Chest. Communities Chest is an opportunity for people within the various communities of finance and technology in which Zian works to share uh, some of their thoughts and attitudes uh, and what's really going on in their world with the wider community. And I'm absolutely delighted today to be welcoming Richard Burge. Richard, good to see you. Hi. Uh, Richard's a long-term friend and we'll be getting into his career in a moment. Uh, but I would like to begin, of course, and I will end uh, with thanks to our sponsors. I feel like uh, one of those American soap operas in the late afternoon, or perhaps this is really just Wayne's world with my friend uh, Richard as we uh, shoot the breeze <laughs> on what's in Richard's world. Uh, today, the, the format is fairly straightforward. It's a conversation. Uh, Richard will be talking about some of the things that are on his, uh, in his intray, uh, what he's finding surprising, uh, and he's got a couple of asks for the audience, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. A pointer that you are very, very welcome to ask questions. I see over 50 people online. Uh, so just uh, type your questions in, send them uh, to me, and I will field them to Richard as we go along. Uh, but first, uh, let's just uh, let's just get moving in a second. Richard, um, this isn't quite uh, Richard Burge, this is your life, uh, but we do have this slide here, which I think assembles uh, some of the things in your world. Do you want to just talk the audience through a few of these? Well, I have to say the bloke, the bloke sitting there is clearly not me. Um, he's got a tie and a suit on. Um, so yeah, let me just talk through. So this is recent history. So Wilton Park, um, the great secret of the Foreign Office. It's one of its uh, sort of more discreet agencies. It's not secret at all, but we used to say our job uh, was to put people in the room to talk about things they didn't want to talk about with people they really didn't want to talk about those things with. So we got involved in the sort of grit in the international system. So any issue where things were just not progressing or going backwards, our task was to get people back into the habit of talking. So. Uh, that could be anything that could be uh, weapons of mass destruction, which are quite complicated agreements and quite sticky stuff there. Uh, conventional um, conflicts, human rights, environment, economic uh, distress, all those sorts of things. I mean, a lot of the time we were probably the only place where people were engaging because normal relationships and certainly negotiations for peace had broken down. Um, set up about 70 years ago. Um, the name of the institution is not the name of the building you see in front of it, which of course adds to its air of mystery. Uh, that's Will, that's Whiston House on the South Downs, and I was privileged enough to live in a little cottage in the grounds. Uh, we could look after 50 people there. It was a two-mile drive, a two-mile walk down the drive, so if anyone threw a hissy fit in the room, uh, it was a long way to maintain a hissy fit, particularly in the snow, and when you were surrounded by several thousand sheep. Uh, so that was that was what I did then. And then I well, spent there myself, actually. And I, I must say it is absolutely gorgeous. I, I was in envy yeah. that you had so long there. And the most beautiful thing I, I attended was a, it was a wonderful even song with the sun setting in that gorgeous yeah. chapel. What a place. Yeah, it was an amazing. It, it was and still is an amazing place. And. And the reason it, we didn't talk much about its work is not because the work was secret. I mean, during a year, we'd have 3,000 people from 160 countries come through the door. Um, but because um, we felt that by not talking about the detail of the work, it encouraged people to believe that we were quite a discreet place and they could come and be open and frank um, and know that uh, uh, 
that uh, their knowledge was their property and not ours. So we never really talked about the content of the work. Um, although we did put on the website as much as we could about the nature of our work and, and, and the outcomes of some of the things we, we did. And increasingly, we started doing work in other countries. So I used to go to other countries a lot, uh, partly to find locations where we could do work. And that was mostly for conferences where we needed to get people in the room who um, probably would not be given a visa to come to the United Kingdom. And if they were given a visa, could well be suspicious it would be a one-way trip because um, there would be people who wish to have a chat with them. Um, so we used to do things in other countries, particularly in the major conflict zones. Um, and some of those visits were great. I had to go to Jordan quite a few times to arrange to hold meetings there, a lot on Arab-Israeli peace, but also around uh, the Syrian crisis. We did work in, in Beirut um, and in Turkey um, and, in fact, all, all, all over the world. Um, so that was Walton Park. And then I spent three years uh, running the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council, which is responsible, usually not this year, of course, it's been cancelled, running the Commonwealth Business Forum, which runs alongside the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Um, and last year, well, two years ago, it was held in London. So we worked together on that. And that's where you and I spent quite a bit of time together, Michael, because the City of London was our partner in doing that. And mm. I remember having some quite interesting discussions with the British government to explain that um, if you had 53 heads of government coming into the country who represented a third of the world's population and a quarter of its GDP. Uh, when they talked about business and finance, they would rather probably be in the city of London than the city of Westminster. So it took a bit of time to get that message across, uh, but in the end we did. And so Guildhall, I remember, had one day where we had uh, we had 20 of those heads of government in, in the building at the same time. Right. And, and, you know, we had, uh, you know, um, Cyril Ramaphosa talking to Buhari, talking to Modi. It was a really exciting, yeah. you know, uh, event. So that's what I, I ran that. And then I well, became... It was a real honor to, uh, to, you know, to host, uh, well, sorry, to chair, as you let me, the technology mm. section on that. And I must say, I, I was stunned at the amount of effort that went into that in terms of clearing people, security, et cetera. Mm. And you pulled that off with a heck of a small team. Well, it was a small team, but we had good collaboration from the corporation. And the the other thing was, of course, all the security clearance happened um, pre, um, you know, uh, before the event. So when people got their passes, they were already security cleared. So all they had to do was go through a hoop to make sure they weren't carrying anything. And that meant once you were in the building, um, people were moving around. The heads of government were moving around with business leaders, moving around with NGOs. So there was no security there were no secret rooms or anything it was it was genuinely people were able to interact it was a proper forum in a way um, and i think that's why that's why it worked and was so successful and and i hope it had an impact on the on the city on the corporation as well as the, the broader city which we can sustain um Good. yeah so now that under chamber of commerce and industry yeah, interesting job i mean i um finished at the commonwealth uh, enterprise council and was wondering what to do and I was doing a, a few bits and bobs but you know one of the reasons I end up running and working in organizations is um, I mean I've run my own business uh, twice now both for periods of you know six years um, and I you know I you know what I get lonely I really miss the companionship of colleagues um, and I, I I can't cope so in the end I look for places I can go and work um, and fortunately, this job came up because my predecessor was an old friend of mine who was director of 
of policy and strategy at the Foreign Office when I arrived at Wilton Park. So he and I worked very closely together, particularly on some of the sort of meteor issues. Um, anyway, he became uh, Chief Executive of the London Chamber of Commerce and then suddenly left last summer to become um, the Prime Minister, the Special Negotiator on the EU, uh, David Frost. Um, so I spotted he'd gone and I thought, I think I'd like a crack at that. And so I got the job and I started. And curiously, today is a very interesting day. Today means I have spent longer running the organisation from my own study at home than I've actually spent in its office in the city of London. <laughs> this Good is statistic. turnaround day. Um, so I really don't know much about my organisation at all. <laughs> I look at people blankly at the Zoom and say, what's your name? Have we met? Um, but no, there are, it's, a, it's a lovely organisation. Um, we've got a lot to do, a lot to change. Um, and curiously, of course, the whole they never waste a good crisis. Um, and uh, my, one of my favourite quotations. Now, let, let me see if you know this one, Michael. Uh, you're an erudite man. Uh, it's a favourite quotation of mine. Out of the ashes of disaster grow the roses of success. No, go on. Who is that then? Right. OK. The author is Ian Fleming. Ah. And, and the book is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, a lot of ashes in that. So, <laughs> so what I'm not going to so I am determined. I am, I am a horticulturalist of organisations. I, you know, I help uh, rescue things from disaster and grow roses of success, not least when I ran the Zoological Society of London several years ago, <laughs> which was a, a major exercise in rose growing. Well, we had a we had a uh, an April Fool's spoof called Chair Miles, and it sounds to me like you're you're earning them in abundance in your in your new post. And perhaps I guess you know yeah. as we have these sort of uh, tax days, so, 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 two hundred days before you start working for yourself, we'll probably have a, a you know kind of a chair day until you've actually been in the office a full three months or something. Yeah. Come, come December. I think I, I think it's, I think working for myself is only a matter of time before I issue myself with a redundancy notice. Now, we, you sent me a couple of uh, photos from your ah. ancient history. Do you want to just touch on these quickly? Yeah, just quickly. So this is from these uh, two photos are from Shranka. I was uh, I read zoology. You're on the left, uh, right? Or is it? Uh, yeah, that's me. Um, and uh, I uh, quickly worked out that as a zoologist, uh, uh, there's only one person who's got the job, and that's David Attenborough, and he's still alive. So uh, I wasn't going to get that. Um, but I did go to Sri Lanka as a Commonwealth scholar for three years and did research, and I worked on the uh, evolution of mammalian territorial behavior as a comparison between water buffalo and elephant. Um, so I just wanted, I mean, Sri Lanka had a, a huge, huge impact on me. We were as poor as church mice, my wife and I, and uh, with our baby. Uh, a war had broken out. I was working in a national park, which was half in the heart sides of the government, half in the hands of the rebels. Um, but I was the mad zoologist who went around picking up buffalo shit. Um, and looking at it under a microscope. So they both sides avoided me. I don't know why. But the elephant there is a, a classic Sinhalese elephant uh, in the Yala National Park. Uh, his name was uh, was Loku, uh, yeah, Loku Putwa. So uh, Putwa means a cross. It's similar for a cross, his, his, his tusk cross. And the, he was Loku, which means he's the older one, the big one, Loku Putwa. And he's Loku because, like all older people, uh, he is right as over left. Um, the potty pooch were the smaller one. The younger one was left over right. And so that had a huge influence on me living and working. It was the first time I, I sort of lived and worked in a, in, in a war zone. Um, 
and uh, was doing something which was not going to, you know, as you would say, Michael, increase the price of fish. Um, so it uh, it did have a huge impact. And the other side of that impact was the human side of it. Now, these these two monks, as you can tell, are not Sinhalese. These are European um, and they are similar. Their names are Nandabasa and Abasa. Uh, Chandabasa is uh, sunshine and Nandabasa is in Pali is uh, moonshine. Um, so they were a couple in a very, very platonic way, but they were completely inseparable, uh, being monks for about 30 years together. Um, and between them and the elephant, and particularly I used to uh, watch the migratory patterns of elephants and water buffalo, um, and the, literally day-to-day -day slight shifts. And, and it was like that looking at Chandabasa and Nandabasa. Every day was a very slight shift for them. And I suppose what I learned is that, and it's going to sound very naff, but it, I, I truly believe it, it, life is just a pathway. You should worry very, very little about the end. You should worry much more about your direction of travel. And it's not about reaching a goal or reaching about an end. It's the purpose. It is the purposefulness of your direction of travel. And that means the purposefulness of each step in every day and seeing in every day that you have taken a step along your path. And if you've fallen off a bit, at least you continue to know where the path is and you try and get back onto it. But it's, I, I suppose, do I follow that? No, I'm very bad at it. But I try to remind myself this is about life as a pathway and you only travel it once. So you've got to make the most of it. Well, uh, so I remember I remember once on a pathway with you and uh, if I recall rightly, it was uh, in, in Sichuan. We were going up to the Panda Center and you were asked to deliver an impromptu lecture on the Panda mm -hmm. in a sort of a half hour right uh, out of Chengdu and I recall it was one of the most erudite presentations I'd ever listened to on the panda although it points uh, skating on uh, certainly uh, people's sensibilities and their yeah, love think, of the pure sweet animals. Yes yeah, so I did sort of question the per well I didn't question the purpose of the panda it was one of our party Margaret very famous QC turned to me at the end and said Richard what is the point of a panda? <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs> oh, right. Well, this one, yeah. So this is much more recent. I, um, I suppose what Afghanistan has taught me is that that often life faces you with no good choices, um, and what you'd have to do is choose the one that causes least harm at the time, most opportunity for the future. But you have to accept sometimes there's no 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 choice. Um, once uh, there's a wonderful lecture given by um was given called a romanus lecture given in 1905 by lord curzon uh who was an incredibly arrogant man he was, uh, um, became foreign secretary for a time after the first world war and uh lord curzon for a time was the minister in other words a very senior ambassador in kabul um and he wrote this letter when he came back to britain called frontiers um uh, in a romanus lecture in oxford in which he talks about um, the nature of borders and he talks about borders being constructed by buffer states and their purpose is to keep two great empires apart and he said the purpose of afghanistan was to keep british india and uh and the russians apart that was its sole job and he said the only reason a buffer state works well is if you make it uh completely undesirable to both of the empires on either side of it whoa um and i remember um sitting with uh, in Kabul with um, Ashraf Ghani 
uh, who's now the president at the time. He had uh, he'd failed in his first attempt to be elected and was quite aghast that 95 percent of the population had decided for some reason he wasn't good enough. Um, he um, and we sat in his office and it was one of these awful things. I sat there. I'd gone in two British military policemen had cleared the office before I was allowed to go in. So it was all, you know, slightly embarrassing. Yeah. And we sat there in the window open and these three Chinooks came past. Um, and uh, and the, the noise was such that we had to stop talking. And then it stopped and Ashraf turned to me and said, well, Richard, we're all Curzon's children now. Meaning that we had become part of this, this, this battle now to create a state out of Afghanistan a country which had been designed not to be a state at all, but to be a buffer. And the reason, so, I, so Afghanistan taught me a lot. Um, I have to say I was very safe there. I was safe because I spent basically six people guarding me at any time, wherever I went. Uh, that was including the chap on the other side. If you just bring the photo back, Michael, briefly, because it is an important photo. Um, that chap there is my son. Uh, and that was on his first tour of Afghanistan uh, in Helmand. And, you know, I have to say, being the father of a son who goes to um, on the combat tour in Afghanistan is not easy. Um, it's much more difficult for the person there. But he, you, you don't sleep much. Um, you wrestle with things. Uh, but then you realize why they're there. And they were there because of the attack on the World Trade Centers and the refusal of the Afghan government to hand over the uh, the Taliban government to hand over Al Qaeda. And in the end, there was no choice. It was not a good choice to invade Afghanistan. It was not a good choice to do all the things that came after it. But in the end, there was no choice. And in a way, in a, in a much slighter way now, we're having to do that now with COVID-19. There are no good choices in dealing with this. You just have to choose the, the least worst option. Yeah, sadly, I will probably return to that towards the end of this uh, interview. Well, uh, let, let's uh, let's just touch on some of the things that uh, are on the top of your entry. Now, I noticed in the last uh, 36 hours or so, you've uh, been uh, trying to explain to uh, the prime minister how things work. Uh, do you just want to touch on that briefly? Yeah, I think, uh, can I just say, Michael, your, your offer to submit me for an honour, I think just wait until there's another prime minister now. I just don't think it's just not worth the candle anymore. Ah, um, yes, yes, that paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, Prime Minister made an announcement last night, which basically encouraged everyone to go back to work um, tomorrow, today. And I issued a statement saying, um, on basis of what he said, I strongly encourage any business in London not to do that at all and to keep their people working from home if they can, but not to try and reopen their offices until they've got more detail and more facts on the table about how they're meant to do it. Um, yeah, you got a lot of support people. for your statement, didn't you? Yeah, it's. I think the phrase is trending. Yes, it did. Um, and after we spoke, and I'm on Chinese TV. I'm not sure whether that's a good thing, uh, but I'm on Chinese TV. Um, and then uh, Triumph for Triumphs, I'm back with Vanessa Feltz on the radio tomorrow morning talking about these things. I think, but it's here today, gone tomorrow. You know, yeah. it's the fact is the document, the 50-page document is out. Uh, later this afternoon, more detailed guidance will be produced for um, businesses of all shapes and forms and different sectors and then we'll go through the detail but the i think in the end there are no there are no good choices in this this is going to go on for weeks and months businesses are going to have to make some really tough decisions but they have to bear in mind that the tough decision uh is is it's not a choice between good and evil it's um bad and less bad mm, indeed so what is really top all. of the entry then 
my top of my intro, uh, which I I've actually just spent quite a bit of time talking to John Fallon, the chief executive Pearson about, is skills. I think there are going to be good things that are going to come out. There are going to be roses out of these ashes. And I think one of them is we're going to start to appreciate skills a lot more. I hope we are going to stop talking about higher education, further education as being an event at the beginning of your life. Um, and then somehow you have a bit of uh, continual professional development as you go along. Um, I am hoping out of this, we are going to see two big changes. One is uh, people looking, institutions that provide education at tertiary level, starting to tell people when they first arrive, look, you've, you've come, you can, but this is the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. That once you're part of an education tertiary institution, you will remain part of it. They will find ways of continuing to help keep your skill base up to speed and expand it and give you new horizons through it. The second thing is I think employers are going to start to change and realise that uh, we finally reached the point where um, people are going to have 50 to 70 year working lives, uh, if not longer. Remember, the first 150 year old woman has already been born. So we're going to have very, very long working lives and you're not going to keep somebody employed in that the whole time. You have got to become part of their, of their skill set. And I think we'll start seeing ourselves as manifested by skills rather than uh, jobs. Uh, that we will start to worry less about qualifications, but more about the use of our knowledge and expertise in a context, which is the application of the skill. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I think it's, it's something which affects tiny micro businesses right the way up to the mega businesses that dominate the world. It's something that binds them all together. And it's something that also should bind it to the public sector and to the NGO sector as well. We are dealing with the same issue which is human beings with valuable skills honed through training, through experience and through innate talent. Hmm. So that's on top of that's what's on top of my entry. Well, uh, COVID-19, it doesn't have to range there. I'd be equally interested in some of your very first impressions uh, coming in as a chief executive of a very venerable organization. Um, but, you know, what's been the most surprising thing you've seen over the last few weeks? Uh, the I would say it's surprising because it sounds as though it, it doesn't, I don't have much esteem. I have huge esteem for my, my newly acquired colleagues, but I've been really overwhelmed by the positive way in which they've approached half of them being put on furlough, which of course means for a lot of them a significant drop in earnings. Um, I've, I've just been overwhelmed by their the positive, uncomplaining, gritty resolve they've had to deal with it. Uh, even when I've been able to offer them no potential end in sight. And for the ones who've remained, I've been um, incredibly impressed by their ability just to sort of work every hour that they're given. Um, and some of them are not, you know, sitting like me in a nice house with a little garden and my own study in the roof. You know, I've got colleagues who are um, sharing a flat with, with three flatmates they barely knew. Um, until this came and they're all operating around a dining room table having taken turns to do uh, conference calls. Uh, I've got um, colleagues who are on their own, are completely isolated and some of them are finding it quite difficult but there is a resolve and I have been surprised um, at the resolve of my fellow citizens and my fellow workers. Um, really surprised and really heartened by it. 
which makes me think that the two, the, the two speeches the Queen has given, the addresses she's given, have been bang on the nail. You know, you know I'm a mere 62 year old. I clearly do not know the nation as well as she does. Um, and uh, I think she is not surprised by it. I think she sees it as an innate quality that we have, which young, the younger generation have in as many spades as the older generation do. So that's for me, that's been really surprising. And, uh, you know, along the same sort of lines, what, uh, it's a lot, I think, to think about at the moment. Uh, it's not yeah. a, an easy situation. We're guessing, surmising, what, what's this all going to be uh, like in the future? We've had people claiming this is the end of offices. We've had people claiming it'll all snap back to usual. You know, what, what's been sort of the most thought-provoking thing you've seen over the last uh, few weeks? Um. I, and again, it's a positive thing. I just get a sense people are getting to grips with science a bit more. I wish I could say that was true of our political class. Um, I don't think it is, but I do get a sense that, you know, the ordinary person, you know, somebody, somebody's not like me. I mean, I'm no longer a scientist. I haven't been a scientist for, for years, um, but, you know, I was trained as a scientist. So you know what it's like, Michael. You, you, you sort of think in a particular way. You approach issues in a different way. Very true. Remember when I was in the Foreign Office the, at running Wilton Park, the Simon Fraser, who was our uh, permanent undersecretary at the time, used to say he quite like there were very two or three of us who had science degrees in the in the sort of, if you like, the sort of senior 30 of 30 or 40 of us. And he said he always liked to have at least one scientist in the room for a strategy discussion. He said, because we thought in different ways. We wanted to see evidence. We wanted to see where that evidence came from and how it was gathered. Um, and we tended to start from the point of view, well, supposing, you know, this is wrong. Um, and the, the point of view, as he said, which is, he said, he, he always struck him with a, a scientist always wants, doesn't care how many times you show something is right. What they want to know is how many times you fail to prove it wrong. You're starting to get a sense that we, we are getting a better understanding of science and particularly the science around risk. And that, that is thought provoking. So I said, what does that mean for us now as a, as a people? Do we start to become more resilient because we do think about risk and we prepare for probable risks rather than moan about the improbable ones or complain about the inevitable ones? Um, uh, you know, we are going to die. A old doctor friend of mine, once in his cups, we were both together in a pub in Cumbria during the foot and mouth crisis. And I, I have to say, I was a bit slaughtered. And I said, Jim, it must be wonderful to have saved so many lives. And he looked at me you know, over his eighth beer and said, Richard, I'm a doctor. I've never saved a life. I may have prevented the unnecessary early onset of death, but I have never saved a life. <laughs> yeah, it's a, one of my dear doctor friends, Will Aliff, is constantly going on about, you know, life is a sexually transmitted disease with 100% <laughs> mortality rate. And of course, the best quote in all this has always been, uh, has always, has always been Woody Allen, you know, I'd like to achieve immortality by not dying. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, um, and in fact, uh, just, just to paraphrase something I read in The Economist this week, which is, I think, a bit damning, was something like, you know, government, yes, led by science, manipulated by PR. <laughs> uh, uh, and that leads me on to got an interesting question here from Bob McDowell, who's uh, dialing in from the Channel Islands, uh, which is related to that, because we're moving, I think, from the science aspect to the mm. economics aspect. And mm. we, we know all the issues there to do with experts and economists as well. 
source of many jokes. Uh, do you think that ultimately the UK government will have to arrive at an acceptable level of deaths as part of the COVID-19 exit strategy? Um, I don't think it's an acceptable level of death, but there's an inevitable level of death. Um, I, uh, you know, it's part, it's a disease and it seems to kill about just under 1% of the people it infects. Um, therefore, people are going to die. Um, I think you, again, it's, you know, I mean, being the father of a soldier, I remember being told quite bluntly by the um, commanding officer of the battalion my son went out with that um, when he met all the parents, he said, I do have to tell you that I will be speaking to at least some of you with very bad news and commiserating on the death of your son between now and the end of six months. And it may be you. So prepare yourself. So I think it's not about things being acceptable. Uh, it's about there being an inevitability. Um, and I just think we have to uh, reconcile ourselves to the fact that people will die. It will be tragic. It will be heartbreaking. It doesn't make it any easier. But we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact and not consider that a number of deaths is a sign of failure. Richard, uh, Andrew Finn says he's enjoying this, but uh, leaving uh, COVID-19 for a minute or disregarding it, imagine we had invented the current situation as an opportunity to do really new things uh, that no one had thought of before. So from this kind of positive perspective, what conversations do you think we should be having? Ooh. Hmm. I, I I hope we would have a conversation about goes back to my skills thing soft skills you know what's re, what are the skills which are really valuable to have in human beings what um, what have been the skills that which have um, lightened our lives have made our work easier you know, what are those soft skills and it's not about qualifications um, and experience it's something it's something much more about than about human nature what do we what do we value how can we how can we nurture those things um i think the um i think i hope we'd have a gosh i would i hope we'd have a, a big one of the things i've noticed you notice radio and tv is full of people reading poetry at the moment ah i think that's really good i think that's excellent why don't we have that more why do we have to wait for a, a crisis to emerge before we all yeah, before suddenly realise that poetry is important. Smell the roses, poetry yeah. says things in a few words. I mean, it's like opera. What do they say about opera? That you know, basically, an aria is a is a piece of high emotion that's basically suspended and kept in place for about five minutes. Um, you know, it, it poetry has lifted people's lives in this, and I just hope we don't forget that and I hope we start we continue to talk about poetry and the nature of poetry and why it has an impact on us not just when things are bad but when things are good as well I mean why shouldn't we have poetry more often? well poetry I might go for uh, opera on the other hand being Italian they wouldn't call it opera if it wasn't hard work so <laughs> we'll agree to disagree perhaps on the opera <laughs> now um you're clearly sparking some thoughts here uh, unfortunately, uh, the way the system works is uh, you have to type in your name. Um, so I'm going to read out this uh, reader's name, but I, I'd like to thank him or her for their contribution. Uh, the name is uh, left square bracket waiting for name 300039 uh, right bracket, which of course <laughs> is a, 
I think a take from the prisoner, you know, we are all individuals or something. Anyway, um, this, this uh, listener finds your views on education very interesting, uh, but the focus of education is mostly to create thinking beings as specific skills can quickly go obsolete, be automated away, et cetera. So per, what do you think of the, the um, of positing that perhaps the more abstract the education, for example, philosophy, the wider the applicability? Um, yes, um, I do. I, I think that's possibly true. Um, on the other hand, there is something about being a scientist and a zoo. And okay, I'll tell you what, there's nothing more useless than a zoologist. Um, the, especially the, around uh, pandas. <laughs> especially around, well, no, you're a threat. <laughs> Particularly if you're, if you're my sort of zoologist, uh, doesn't hold a panda in due awe and, and, and reverence. Um, the, I, I think there is something about studying something for the sake of it, for the for the the pure mental joy of studying that subject. I think there's something very very powerful about that. I think there's also something about learning how to learning how to study, and I think you can only do that by studying a subject that you're really in, enchanted by. Um, and I don't think it has to be useful. My professor of zoology, who was a complete madman, uh, called Professor David Barker, who um, wore two pairs of trousers in the winter in Durham, um, held up by Baylor Twine. Um, he, he used to say that um, zoology can be your science, but natural history must be your passion. And by that, I think he meant that there'd got to be something in there. And I imagine it's true um, if you study anything that 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 you might study something as a science and you get the qualifications and you get knowledge but you must get something more visceral out of it and i think if we had education that created a more visceral feeling of pleasure and joy from the process of learning and understanding it then that would be good and i think everyone should have a have a chunk of that and i don't think that demands high intellect the trouble is we tend to restrict it to people we consider to have high enough intellect to go to great universities. But yeah, maybe well, um, philosophy for everyone. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting a bit. Anyway, uh, that flushed out uh, 300, uh, sorry, 300039 is my dear friend Dionysus Demetis. Um, and uh, that moves us on uh, quite a By the way, we're getting some really interesting contributions here. Andrew Finn has uh, shared a poem by David White uh, from his House of Belonging. Uh, I wish Andrew had chosen somebody better than I to read it, or, or I would. It's a bit lengthy, but it is beautiful. And I will pass that on uh, to you afterwards, Thank uh, you. along with the other questions. Um, just a quick one before we turn back to seriousness. What's the funniest thing in 30 seconds you've seen over the last uh, week or two? Funniest thing? I mean, apart from politicians on TV. <laughs> um, yeah, the funniest thing I've, I've seen uh, is... Uh, Two goldfinches squabbling on a feeder in my in my garden, uh, while a pair of sparrows probably eat all the food behind them. <laughs> Ouch! So I thought that was good. A pair of ordinary sparrows, you know, just scoffing themselves while these two preening goldfinches are having a go at each other. Okay. Now we've got a a, a listener in from uh, China. What's a funny poem? Do you want a poem to cheer you up? Just a very short poem. Adrian Henry. Okay, go for it. Okay. And this is this is um, metaphorical. It's not directed at you personally. You'll be pleased to know. When uh -oh. I'm feeling tired and when I'm feeling tired and weary, when I think all hope has gone, as I walk along the high street, I think of you with nothing on. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know what it's been. The last month, this uh, earworm running through my head has been a, a great line from a, um, a J Jimmy Buffett uh, song. You know, if your phone ain't ringing, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and after that poetry, we'll go there. Anyway, uh, Andrew, you uh, we can't keep up with you, Andrew Finn. Um, Richard, uh, turning just to some uh, couple of quick questions here. Uh, first, we've got a, a listener in from uh, China, from Xi'an. Richard, how do you think the ease of the COVID-19 lockdown of the UK will affect UK business working together with Chinese business? And would the UK approach uh, uh, more to the emerging markets, including China, uh, given what's been happening here? So just, just a quick thought on that, if you would. I don't know. I think there's all sorts of um, things going to have to be worked through. Um, I think the um, I, my sense is that in some ways world trade is going to get more difficult. Um, uh, I think there's going to be a few barriers thrown up. I think um, there is there clearly needs to be an examination of of the whole the whole sort of genealogy of, of COVID-19 uh, and its emergence in China. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, I, I've spent too long <laughs> in various countries of the world which prove that con the conspiracy theory is usually the cock-up theory, um, just well hidden. Um, the, uh, but I, I do think that has to be gone through. And I think the openness of the Chinese government and its ability to make uh, data available without fear or favor, I think will be hugely important. Uh, if they are seen, the Chinese government are seen to do it in a very open uh, way and say, look, the purpose of making this data open is to try and make sure we don't have this, we can, we, we're better prepared globally to deal with this in the future, then I think that will go down hugely in terms of encouraging business with China. I do understand that China may suspect that some countries in the world will see this as a rod to try and beat China with, and that is a, uh, a suspicion they would be funded in having. Um, I think China has to be bigger than that and say, no, we're going um, we're going to open the books and we're going to try and find out could we have done things differently. Hmm. Um, that's all of us. Um, I think there is also going to be a drive to develop domestic markets. I think the, and I think that's just part of resilience and part of maybe the comradeliness that comes through the nature of a, a an, an issue like this is that people say, well, okay, um, I was importing, you know, beans from somewhere. Could I have got those beans locally? Could I have been buying things in a local shop? And I think that will hit every nation on earth that's been hit by this disease. I think we'll find you'll find it in China as well. I think you'll find hmm. people not not through suspicion of 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 foreigners of foreign goods but a sense of solidarity with people who are local and producing goods uh, will become stronger and i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think that's the enemy of trade but it, i think it will become a, a good thing and it does mean that the national economies become more resilient and, national, and resilient national economies are the ones you want to do trade with so i sort of see that happening whether um I hope Britain remains an open economy, and that uh, regardless of government, where it may think where government might politically want us to trade with, we'll trade with the most reliable um, customers and clients um, who pay us promptly and value quality. Yeah. Well, that was kind of what Martin Watkins was asking: was your view on international trade negotiations uh, and oh. London? But let's say uh, sadly, I always have to watch time on these. Um, mm. 
I asked you for a big suggestion and a big ask, and uh, wouldn't yeah. mind you just uh, putting those across, and then we'll uh, take a couple of quick questions in the time available. Yeah, um, okay. Um, my, my big suggestion, um, my big suggestion, my big suggestion is that we are heading to a world where nations are going to matter less and cities and regions will matter more that the relationship between london and new york and obviously using london all the time because it's my 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 parish and my manor um i will matter relations to london and shanghai will matter more than the relationship between the uk and um and and china um so that's my big suggestion is that i think we're heading towards a world which is going to be much more about the relationships between natural communities and less between nation states. I think we are, despite all the nationalism I see, I think this is the death throes of nationalism. Wow. Yeah, you've inspired quite a few people. Uh, Hugh Purser was asking, how do you translate the journey rather than the destination point that you made earlier uh, from the individual to the corporate level? Um, but right now, I wouldn't mind while you're pondering that, if you could also uh, ask, uh, What's the ask to the Zen communities? What would you like us to do? I would like you to let me know of brilliant examples of human ingenuity in unexpected places. So this is not about tech advances. It's about the very small things that have a disproportionate effect, positive effect on the world around them. So it's not necessarily an act of charity, maybe an act of inspiration, uh, an act of, 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 just, of just sheer brilliance. It's, uh, it's, it's basically for, it's, it's the societal equivalent of the groundbreaking three lines of source code. Mm. That's what I'd like to, I'd like to know some examples of that. And I'd like to know them obviously in, in the business community because that's the community I work in. But those small things that could actually just completely transform the way we live, work, earn money, run our economies, think of the nature of business and relationships with society. And what would you do with that? So I come up and I say, hey, here's a piece of great human ingenuity, Richard. What are you going to do about it or with it? I would find, try and find a way of probably a completely inappropriate phrase at a time, turning it viral in the business community of London. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that's bugged, I think, a lot of us uh, about uh, COVID-19 hmm. has been the fact that we, we saw it coming. <laughs> it was pretty obvious it, it was there. We had SARS in 2003 and recurring. Uh, we've had flus. Um, it's always been on the charts. And in fact, in some ways, I think the dog that didn't bark. It is astonishing how we are all managing to work from home uh, pretty much at the drop of a hat uh, in a way that I think wouldn't have been possible maybe even five years ago, but certainly not 10. Yeah. So there's there have been some interesting uh, parameters here. But one of, the, one of the questions that Dionysus uh, was also asking was, are there any management models that work on the singularities like COVID? I don't know. I don't know. I think you're right in the sense we we should have been better prepared for this. I mean, you know, we'll have to go through the history of it, but I find it frankly 
there's one proposal I'd like to bring up at this point. And this may actually be a management model that maybe Dionysus would actually, this may be his, this may be the answer to this question. Is that I think, you know, you know, I've known looking, I've been looking at the National Risk Register for years. Um, and there have been three things at the top, oscillating between the top. It's like, you know, the best universities in, in, in the country are Oxford, Cambridge and Durham. Clearly, no argument. Don't, don't, don't anyone respond to that. It is a truth. Um, so um, the and the three things on the top of the National Risk Register have been cyber attack, uh, pandemics and terrorism. So they've been in one way or the other, those three have been banging around for first place for, for years. I can't believe what we were so 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 many obvious things weren't already in place, not in terms of the detail, but in terms of how we would approach and tackle the problem. And one of those things, I think, is we really have not got to grips with the the nature of critical infrastructure in this country. We're suddenly finding out there's lots of things which are critical infrastructure we didn't know were critical infrastructure. Um, and uh, I think particularly, you know, for instance, the ability of small manufacturing companies to turn on their heads very quickly and produce things which are needed very urgently and very quickly in mm. large numbers. Um, the internet, I don't think, has really featured high enough on critical infrastructure. Um, so I think uh, care homes have not fitted, fit, featured on our critical well, care, care providers in care homes. Have not not featured on our critical infrastructure. You bet your bottom dollar, brain surgeons have, um, and maybe critical care nurses, but not you know people looking after old people in homes. So I think we we were ill prepared for that. Uh, but one of the things I think we were really ill prepared for is that we do not have the major companies in our country, particularly the banks, and we cannot exist without banks now. You're not allowed to exist without bank. If you want to get hold of money, you have to have a bank account. If you want to the government gets it. So the government has all the help it's given its citizens and its companies who have to go to a bank account. They are a national service, and yet we do not have, uh, they do not have a social contract. They do not have um, a license to operate. So they are given this power. We have lots of institutions in this country that have massive power over us in the private sector, and yet they have no license to operate in terms of their duties at a time of crisis. Now, I'm not blaming the banks for that. It's not, I wouldn't have said it was their job to put that in place, but mm. with government, it was their job to actually think about that. It was pretty obvious if a crisis hits this country that starts to hit the economy, the banking system has got to be really, really, uh, really alert and really capable of turning itself around into a cash delivery system into the economy or else nothing, nothing will happen. You'll have people would have to queue outside town halls and collect bundles of tenors. So I think there is something here around um, the relationship of critical businesses and their social obligations to a country, to its to their country in the crisis. Um, and I think we need to to think about that. Maybe that is that the answer to Dionysus? Possibly. Maybe I maybe got around to answering this question. I think you kind of have actually. Well, um, I'm afraid you know we we, we have run out of time, but uh, but I think I, I let me read a couple of questions because you yeah. you won't have time to answer them, um, uh, and also they're coming in sort of towards the end, which is nevertheless a good sign. Uh, Lars is asking uh, from a business and environmental background, do you think states might be more Malthusian rather than the current infinite growth model? Martin Watkins is interested in uh, your thoughts on critical infrastructure. Do you believe that the EU debt funding of COVID-19 
could exist without the skills within London's financial markets? No. Um, no that's very clear answer. Yep. No. <laughs> nope. Good. There you go, Martin. Uh, David O'Reilly, uh, Wimbledon Park Capital, would like to know, Richard, do you think there's a risk that following this investment in infrastructure will suffer? Push to the back of the queue, railways, airports, as people travel less and do more Zoom calls and whatnot. So wrapping all of that up into kind of a, a punchy bit, this slide says outlook. You know, what's your outlook five years out? Sunshine. While there's troubles ahead, there's moonlight and dancing and romance. Those things will continue. There will still be moonlight and dancing and romance. That's my outlook. Okay. Well, folks, um, it, it's been an amazing uh, interview with uh, somebody I count as one of my one of my most interesting friends. Um, in fact, I will take just the tail end of Andrew's submitted poem because it is really quite a beautiful poem. Uh, again, by David White, W-H-Y-T-E. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes with the bones of the black sticks left, when the fire has gone out, someone has written something new in the ashes of your life. You are not leaving. Even as the light fades quickly now, you are arriving. Very good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's been a real delight to have you as ever. Folks, uh, as you gather a plea there, share great examples of human ingenuity that you've come across. Um, we did, in fact, participate in the Pandemic Challenge, which was organized by my council and a number of us, pandemicchallenge.com. Um, that challenge gave out five awards uh, last month and has been reopened uh, for more examples of human ingenuity uh, due by the uh, December of this year. So do feel free to go and contribute there to all sorts of ideas from uh, aerosol spray chambers at offices uh, through to the inevitable apps uh, on phones. Uh, but Richard, it uh, falls to me to say uh, thanks to you as much as to our sponsors for providing us with his, what has truly been a really fun discussion, and we hope to have you well, thank back. Thank you very point. much indeed. It's been a huge Keep pleasure. Up the good work at London uh, Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And on okay. behalf of the audience, a, a virtual hand clap there uh, from me. Thank you. Well, so what thank a pleasure. What a pleasure. All right. And we look forward to seeing all of you on our next webinars. In fact, we've got one tomorrow on COVID and COP26 with Nick Maybe of E3G, which should be extremely interesting uh, given the critical state of the climate, uh, which is the next thing that we saw coming uh, after COVID, uh, but also the critical state of COP26 given current circumstances. Uh, so be ready for that one tomorrow at 2 p.m. Thanks to one and all, and we'll see you again soon.